I have uh, talked consistently in this uh, forum about uh, the nature of the ego, uh, the center of consciousness, that uh, complex within human consciousness which uh, gives us our self-image. And uh, for the most part, it seems that I have, if not overemphasized, at least emphasized uh, the nature of egocentricity, and that is that the ego tends to try to want to dominate uh, the entire psychological system, and the ego has no interest in religion, basically. The ego has interest in survival. Uh, the ego enters the world asking the question, what are the rules for making it in this environment? So the ego will pretty well adapt to whatever uh, it gets stroked or rewarded for doing. Now the religion, uh, the religious part of the psyche is the self, which is the integrating uh, center of all that we are. Uh, but somebody asked me, what's the opposite of egocentricity? Well, the opposite of egocentricity is uh, one who has a weak or non-existent ego structure, which it seems to me in uh, the categories of sin that I talk about probably uh, is one of the most sinful states to be in, and that is to have no self-image. Uh, the only thing worse than having a big ego is to having none at all. Um, now, once again, I want to stress that ego structure is important and is not necessarily a negative. What's negative about having a strong self-image uh, is that it's only one view of you. And it's not necessarily the one that others have or that God has. I'm continually surprised at uh, people's perceptions of me that I couldn't conceive of, much less perceive. Now, so what uh, we have talked about previously in terms of categories of sin are the three categories of sin, and that is the will to be oneself at the exclusion of all others, which is egocentricity. Uh, I'm going to be me, I gotta be me, this is the me generation, I, I, I. Uh, that is uh, what has been known pretty much as selfishness, which, uh, or worship of one's own self, which is insidious. Uh, that inflation, that uh, big ego, it's different from a strong ego, which means that we have to have some self-image uh, to be able to survive in this environment because there's so much competition for one's self-image. Uh, yet, to have a big ego means that you're unbalanced. It's like a kind of metaphorical hydrocephalic, one who... Now, the second category of sin, you know that person in that first category because they are always in the need of puncturing their pretense. I mean, they walk around asking people to puncture their pretense. I mean, it's this kind of balloon-headed character that walks around inflicting uh, himself uh, and the fullness thereof on society uh, without ceasing. And, 
Now, there are those of us who seem to be called uh, to carry pins to puncture that pretense. <laughs> and I have several favorite stories about that, and I don't have time to regale you with the humor of these wonderful stories. Uh, plus, I'm afraid you might uh, puncture my pretense. Uh, just one example is the, is the guy who uh, never takes a shower because it clouds the mirror. You know him. <laughs> he came home one day and said to his wife, I've been named man of the year. And she says, well, that goes to show you what kind of year it's been. <laughs> a punctured pretense. Now, the second category of sin, uh, which is in opposition to the will to be oneself at the, ex at the exclusion of all others, is the will to be as another at the exclusion of oneself. That is the pebble in a brook that's buffeted back and back. It's, the, it's back and forth. It's the uh, weather vane who awakens each morning to see which way the wind's blowing to know what direction to take with her life. I'm trying to use an inclusive pronoun. Um, the third category is the worst, and that is the category of uh, uh, the will to not be at all. And that is the will to, to be beingless. And that's the blah. That, that is the inner tube with no air in it. Uh, and of course I think that's the greatest blasphemy when, from which we get the word blah by the way blah is, is from the word same root as blasphemy and the worst thing to be is to not be and that's the one who uh, doesn't have any direction doesn't have any purpose or meaning now why is it that somebody would have a weak or inadequate ego structure well there are lots of reasons for that and it probably has to do with early environmental teaching and that is whoever the parental figures were biological parents family of origin uh, super ego kinds of authority figures teachers uh, preachers and doctors aunts uncles all of those authority figures who told this ego what it uh, was and you have such statements coming out as you'll never amount to anything uh, such statements as uh, uh, you are worthless uh, shiftless uh, lazy no account now those tend to have effects on one's self-image particularly when one's learning uh, Thanks to the grace of God and the openness of future and the understanding of freedom, we're able to relearn those things. But if a child grows up with a parent saying, you'll never amount to anything, that's an early learning that's hard to relearn. Now, you'll find either a weak ego structure or an overcompensation for that uh, when uh, one spends his whole life trying to please his father to amount to something. Uh, now, most of this you know from your sophomore psychology class, but one of the things that we need to remember also about weak ego structure is this whole idea of shame, which uh, so many of us are familiar with in our own upbringing and 
God forgive us all in the way we've treated one another. I think the most benign way to talk about that, as I've talked in other circumstances, is to talk about uh, the, in terms of early developmental staging of the ego, is to talk about my relationship with my little dog, Kirby. And as you know, uh, Kirby um, has a desire to be something he can never be, and that is to be a human being. <laughs> it's okay, I have the desire from time to time to be as an animal, but I, <laughs> I, I can't finally be satisfied to be just an animal. Uh, so Kirby wants to sleep in my bed, uh, bathe in my tub, and eat at my table. Now, one of the ways, uh, because Kirby and I live with a different language system, um, Kirby and I have difficult under difficulty understanding one another in terms of compromise and education, and so one of the ways I get Kirby off my bed is to shame him. And so I do so with a finger, uh, occasionally maybe even with a swat, with a, a passive house shoe, but mainly it's with the tone of voice uh, that I do so. Well, it works. Uh, the reason I've done it and I continue to do it is because it works. It you know, gets him off the bed and gets him out of the tub and off the table. <laughs> But I want to tell you something that's not quite so enjoyable about all of this, and that is, I don't think I need to describe to you, though I will attempt to describe the posture and look on Kirby's face when I shame him. I mean, when he's ashamed, uh, he, he draws up into a kind of a prenatal position. And he looks up at me with, uh, with these eyes that, that uh, uh, in which I see myself reflected in lots of ways. Now, so as we talk about my shaming Kirby in order to modify his behavior, uh, that's one set of understanding. But I'll confess uh, publicly that I've seen that look in my own children's eyes. Uh, when I have tried to modify their behavior by shame and ridicule. I'm not proud of that. Though I think maybe I express something of each of us who have tried to modify behavior of those children that we have birthed. And it's not that we are not wise enough to figure out what we're doing, it's that we are human beings too. And sometimes patterns have developed in us to where we were taught to modify behavior through shame, and so that's all we know, and we turn it around on a, another generation, and the sins of the father visit themselves on the father's sons. And uh, they shall eat grapes, and their children's teeth shall be set on edge. Now, um, the problem, therefore, with shaming people is that that becomes uh, some of the earliest learning about their own image of themselves. And it's an image of devalued worth. Uh, you're no good. When you act naturally, you are no good. It's the way by which we potty train. Uh, you know, we finally say that we won't tolerate this. 
that this is unacceptable behavior, and so we began controlling by shaming, basically. Now, I only want to explain this because this uh, character that I'm going to share with you today is not a full character. She is only a symbol of a part of each of us, and that is that part of ourselves that we probably are not terribly aware of, or if we are proud of, and if uh, we are aware and proud of, then we have integrated her to where uh, she is a part of our greater family. The name of the book that I'm going to talk about, the character, uh, is the title of the book and the name of the character, which is Mrs. Bridge. Mrs. Bridge was written in 1959 by Evan Connell. Uh, who grew up in Kansas City. It's about a woman in Kansas City named Mrs. Bridge. Uh, Mrs. Bridge is in the second category of sin and from time to time uh, will lapse into the third category, that of uh, the will to be as another at the expense of oneself. That's the second category. The third category is the will to not be. And she lapses into the third category from time to time when things get terribly difficult. Mrs. Bridge's whole uh, goal in life is to accomplish about three things. One is to do the right thing. It means no matter what, she wants to do the right thing. Now, in order to do the wrong, or the right thing, it means that you never do the wrong thing. In order to never do the wrong thing, you don't do anything. It's a very simple formula. <laughs> In order to always do the right thing means to never do the wrong thing, and the only way to never do the wrong thing is to never do anything. The second thing is that Mrs. Bridge wants everything to be nice. <laughs> A friend of mine, uh, every year at Christmas and on her birthday, the friend would ask her mother what she wanted, and she said, I just want you to be nice. <laughs> no, Mrs. Bridge is not terribly concerned about the world coming to an end. She just wants to be sure it'll be done nicely. <laughs> and uh, the third vocation that she adapts is to look pretty and go to lunch. Now, I will conclude the lecture um, with some sense of uh, how Mrs. Bridge is in each of us, male and female. But I want you to know that my title of this book, although it's titled Mrs. Bridge, is The Unauthenticated Woman. I want you to ask yourselves as I describe a few vignettes from Mrs. Bridge's life as to what authenticates a human being. I mean, what is an authentic human being? What authenticates one? What makes them authentic? Uh, it appears to me, I would seek your understanding of not agreement, that Mrs. Bridge is an unauthenticated woman. Her first name was India. She was never able to get used to it. It seemed to her that her parents must have been thinking of someone else when they named her. <laughs> Connell writes with great economy, and each line is a morsel. And if you haven't already understood 
something of Mrs. Bridge in the first line, then uh, you haven't understood very much. <laughs> or were they hoping for another sort of daughter? How would you like to be raised in a family where you never were quite the child your parents wanted? And if there's anybody in this room who feels that way, I beg you not to raise your hand. I suspect it would be unanimous. <laughs> As a child, she often, it was often on the point of inquiring about whether they did or not, but the time just passed and she never did. Now and then, while she was growing up, the idea came to her that she could get along very nicely without a husband. And to the distress of her mother and father, this idea prevailed for a number of years after her education had been completed. But then there came a summer evening and a young lawyer named Walter Bridge, very tall, dignified, red-haired, with grimly determined, intelligent face and rather stoop-shouldered so that even when he stood erect, his coat hung lower in the front than in the back. She had known him for several years without finding him remarkable in any way. <laughs> but on this summer evening, on the front porch of her parents' home, she toyed with a sprig of mint and looked at him attentively while pretending to listen to what he said. He was telling her that he intended to become rich and successful, and that one day he would take his wife, whenever I finally decide to marry, he said, for he was not yet ready to commit himself. One day he would take his wife on a tour of Europe. He spoke of Ruskin and Robert Ingersoll, and he read to her that evening on the porch uh, later some verses from the Rubaiyat. While her parents were preparing for bed, the locusts sang in the elm trees all around. A few months after her father died, she married Walter Bridge. Moved with him to Kansas City, where he decided to establish a practice. All seemed well. The days passed and the weeks and the months more swiftly than in childhood. She felt no trepidation except for certain moments in the depth of the night when, as she and her new husband lay drowsily clutching each other for reassurance, anticipating the dawn of the day and another night which might prove them both immortal, Mrs. Bridge found herself wide awake. During these moments, resting in her husband's arms, she would stare at the ceiling or at his face, which sleep robbed of strength, with an uneasy expression as though she saw or heard some intimidation of the years that lay ahead. She was not certain what she wanted from life or what to expect from it, for she had seen so little of it. But she was sure that in some way, because she willed it to be so, her wants and her expectations were the same. For a while after their marriage, she was in such demand that it was not unpleasant when he finally fell asleep. Presently, however, he began sleeping all night, and it was then she awoke more frequently and looked into the darkness, wondering about the nature of men, doubtful of the future, until at last there came a night when she shook her husband awake and spoke of her own desire. Affably, he placed one of his long white arms around her waist. She turned to him then, contently, expectantly, and secure. However, nothing else occurred. And in a few minutes, he had gone back to sleep. <laughs> that was the night Mrs. Bridge concluded that while marriage might have been an equitable affair, love was not. 
The story is vignettes, and we have children. She has three, uh, two girls and a boy, each expressing some nature of uh, the child in each of us, a daughter who goes off to New York to become an actress with a life that was left in the shadows that we can only imagine, a daughter who stays home to do the right thing and marries a man and goes into South Kansas to a farm, but is never quite happily married, and a son uh, that she never quite understands, who for a while does rebellious things, but in the end uh, takes the advice after his father's death that you must become a man and become the father of the house. And he does so. One vignette, which I think will speak for itself, about Mrs. Bridge and her relationship to love and her relationship to sexuality and her relationship to Mr. Bridge, but more importantly, her relationship to herself. This chapter is entitled The Search for Love. It seemed to Mrs. Bridge that she had done the necessary thing and therefore the right thing in regard to this monstrous tower. Her son Douglas had built a huge tower in their yard. It was made out of scraps of wood and bottle, of string, of stray uh, and undescribable things with uh, concrete until he built this huge tower in their house. Uh, she finally, while Douglas was away at school, called the fire department to take it down uh, because uh, it was drawing too much attention. Uh, she finally said, Douglas, the tower is just getting too big. And people were beginning to wonder. We don't want anything about our family to be exceptional. It seemed to Mrs. Bridge that she had done the necessary thing, therefore the right thing, in regard to this monstrous tower. Again and again she thought about it. And the reason she thought about it so intensively was that she perceived a change in Douglas's attitude toward her. He was more withdrawn. As time went on, she felt an increasing need for reassurance. Her husband had never been a demonstrative man, not even when they were first married. Consequently, she did not expect too much from him. Yet there were moments when she was overwhelmed by a terrifying, inarticulate need. One evening, as she and he were finishing supper together, alone, the children having gone out, she inquired rather sharply if he loved her. She was surprised by her own bluntness and by the almost shrewish tone of her voice, because that was not the way that she was taught to feel. She saw him gazing at her in astonishment. His expression said very clearly, Why on earth do you think I'm here if I don't love you? Why aren't I somewhere else? What in the world has gotten into you? Mrs. Bridge smiled across the floral centerpiece, and it occurred to her that these flowers she had so carefully arranged on the table were what were separating her from her husband. And she said a little wretchedly, I know it's silly, but it's been such a long time since you told me that you loved me. Mr. Bridge grunted and finished his coffee. She knew it was not that he was annoyed, only that he was incapable of the kind of declaration she needed. It was so little, and yet it was so much. 
While they sat across from each other, neither knowing quite what to do next, she became embarrassed. And in her embarrassment, she moved her feet, and she inadvertently stepped on the buzzer, concealed beneath the carpet that connected with the kitchen, with the result that Harriet soon appeared in the doorway to see what it was that Mrs. Bridge desired. This vignette is entitled, No Evangelism. Let me tell you something about Mrs. Bridge's understanding of religion. Christianity meant nothing to Ruth, that's Mrs. Bridge's daughter, at least so far as Mrs. Bridge could determine. Ruth went to church reluctantly, sullen, and uncommunicative until she was old enough to defy her mother, knowing her father didn't care if she went or not. And when Mrs. Bridges pleaded with her, saying, Goodness, anyone would think you were a South Sea Islander. Ruth only sighed and murmured, Mother, let me be. Ruth, the daughter, who went to become an actress in New York City. Douglas, her son, reacted quite differently. He objected strenuously when he was a small boy, but later discovering the church had a basketball team on which he might play, if he attended with a reasonable regularity, he became more manageable. <laughs> Carolyn was no trouble at all. As a child, she seemed to enjoy Sunday school, and when she was 14, she joined the choir. Before long, she was reading her Bible at home, and during the week, on Sundays, listening quite attentively to the mellow sermons of Dr. Foster. She also joined the Wednesday evening group of teenagers who met in the church basement. Mrs. Bridge customarily drove Carolyn to those Wednesday evening meetings and allowed one of the older boys to bring her home. She felt a deep sense of pleasure, a pleasure that bordered on real happiness whenever she thought of Carolyn's participation. She herself had never grown as close to the church as she would have liked, though she did not know quite why, and in consequence she blamed herself for Ruth's failure, and to a lesser extent for the fact that if it were not for the basketball team, Douglas would drop out. Mrs. Bridge felt proud, reassured each Wednesday evening. There, on the church steps, she beheld a group of nicely dressed, clean, smiling, courteous young people. Invariably, they appeared cheerful and confident. Surely these faces told her, no evil can ever befall us. Surely, as she thought, none ever would. The choir, the Sunday sermons, the Wednesday evening group, all this failed to satisfy Carolyn's appetite for religious experience. She wanted to experience. She became insatiable. She spent hours reading the Bible. She read the Apocrypha. She had long talks with Dr. Foster. It was just not enough. One evening, she told her mother she intended to join a group of evangelists. Mrs. Bridge immediately saw eight or ten lower-middle-class people on a downtown street corner. The women in bonnets, dark, shapeless gowns, and the men somehow reminding her of Mr. Schumann, who led the high school band. Tubas in the rain, a tambourine being passed around. She'd always looked upon these people with a mixture of pity and respect, and if she could not avoid the tambourine, uh, she put a quarter in it. Well, she said, it's an awfully nice idea, of course. I just wonder if you'd really be happy being an evangelist. Let's see what your father says. Mr. Bridge came home about 9 o'clock. His briefcase was packed and he was harassed and short-tempered. He told Harriet to fix him a sandwich and some coffee and bring it to his study. Carolyn knew it was a poor moment to announce her decision to become an evangelist. 
but she was too thrilled to wait. <laughs> Evangelist? Nonsense, he told her. You'll go on with your schooling. As a matter of fact, I've already enrolled you at the university. That ended the matter. Carolyn was enraged, but like every other member of the family, with the possible exception of Ruth, who seemed unafraid of him, she did not dare argue with Mr. Bridge. Mrs. Bridge sympathized with Carolyn, putting an arm around her waist and saying gently, I expect Dad knows best, but you're an awfully sweet person to think of such a marvelous idea. Now, Mr. Bridge dies. Uh, Douglas is away at the Army, and he is instructed by a family friend that now that Mr. Bridge has died, that he must become the man of the family and take over. And Douglas writes a very uh, paternal, if not patronizing, letter to his mother to let her know that things would be fine because he was in charge. This is the end, the last two vignettes. The concluding vignette is one of the most powerful metaphors I know uh, for the trapped nature of being inauthentic. Her album provided many comforting hours. There she could find her children once again and her husband too. He was standing in bright sunshine with one hand on the fender of a new Rio and uh, Carolyn was sitting on his shoulders. There was Douglas showing off the baseball bat that they had given him for his birthday, and there was Ruth in her first high heels, standing pigeon-toed and earnestly determined not to fall on her face. There, too, were her friends, Grace Barron waving from the high diving board at the country club pool, Mabel Ong outside the auxiliary clubhouse, hands thrust into the side pockets of her tweed jacket, Madge one snowy day in a Persian lamb coat with her Galoshes unzipped. Uh, Lois Montgomery looking presidential. Mrs. Bridge wished she had taken more snapshots. She had quite a few of the European trips. She had spent more than one enjoyable morning with a damp sponge on which to wet the mounting corners. The huge album lying open on the writing desk and the carpet all around her feet littered with negatives and with yellow drugstore envelopes. In went Trafalgar Square, Buckingham Palace, Piccadilly and the Thames, the changing of the guard and the ravens she had seen at the Tower of London. In went the Seine, the Arc de Triomphe, the awning of Maxims, Notre Dame, and Mr. Bridge buying the Herald Tribune in front of the American Express. The pictures of the Riviera had not turned out well, though she could not imagine why unless the light meter had not been working properly. The Riviera, whenever she thought about it, it seemed so foreign, really more foreign to her way of life than even Paris had been. Often she remembered the cliffs and the harbor and the shining sea. I don't know whether this would interest you or not, she would say to guests, picking up the album in both hands, and she deposited it on her visitor's lap, and she would say, not just look at them until you get bored for heaven's sakes, don't feel obliged to go through them all. And she would then hover nearby, anxious to know which pictures were being looked at. Often, she would be unable to sit still. She had to look over a visitor's shoulder, reaching down now and then to say, 
That's the famous old cathedral you're always hearing about, or that's the ocean. <laughs> or this was taken from the steps of the National Gallery, and right there, directly behind the man on the bicycle, is where we ate lunch. But the pictures, to which she returned most often for her own pleasure, were those of her family. They evoked what she had known most intimately and all she had loved most profoundly. One December morning, near the end of the year, when snow was falling moist and heavy for miles around so that the earth and the sky were indivisible, Mrs. Bridge emerged from her home and spread her umbrella. With a small, cautious set of steps, she proceeded to the garage where she pressed the button and waited impatiently for the door to lift. She was in a hurry to drive downtown to buy some Irish lace and a massacres that were advertised in the newspaper and she was planning to spend the remainder of the day browsing through the stores because it was Harriet's day off Mrs. Bridge had nothing else to do, and the house was so empty, so empty. She had backed just halfway out of the garage when the engine died. She touched the starter and listened without concern because despite her difficulties with this big Lincoln, she had grown to feel secure in it. The Lincoln was a number of year years old and occasionally recalcitrant, but she could not bear the thought of parting with it and in the past had resisted this suggestion from her husband who, when he was alive, mildly puzzled at her attachment to this car which he had allowed her to keep. Thinking she might have flooded the engine, which was often true, Mrs. Bridge decided to wait a minute or so. Presently she tried again and again and then again, deeply disappointed she opened the door to get out and discover that she had stopped in such a position that the car doors were prevented from opening more than a few inches on one side by the garage partition and on the other side by the wall. Having tried all four doors, she began to understand that until she could attract someone's attention, she was trapped. She pressed the horn, but there was no sound. Half inside, and half outside, she remained. For a long time, she sat there with her gloved hands folded in her lap, not knowing what to do. Once she looked at herself in the mirror. Finally, she took the keys from the ignition and began tapping on the window, and she called to anyone who might be listening. Hello? Hello out there, but no one answered, unless it was the falling snow. I reminded you last week that the etymology of the word mediocre means halfway up the mountain. The satisfaction with uh, patterns and habits of behavior have there moments of glimpses of truth when we are called to uh, go on uh, through the mediocrity and the mundanity 
and to see within it or see transformed by it uh, some greater calling to be something other than what other people have told us we are to be. But there is just the faint sound for those who have the ears to hear, uh, the call of your own bliss. And so many of us have been satisfied for the mediocrity of being determined by others. What authenticates you? Is it the authority of those early in your life who told you what it is that you were to be and become? Is that the authority? Is that the authenticity? Is that what authenticates you? It's a question. Is it the desire to please other people or society, to have things ordered and nice, to do the right thing? Or is it uh, to become that unique creature that you were created to be, come whence the will cost what it may? It is easy to be satisfied uh, to be in the container of the mundane and the mediocre because if you remember, mediocre people are always at their best. (laughs) But they're always trapped in their mediocrity. It seems to me that Mrs. Bridge is not a character in herself, a cardboard cutout maybe, except uh, she lives with enough prophecy that she pointedly and poignantly says something about the nature of our own being and the question of whether we're to be victims or victors. I suggest that you look at the life of Jesus of Nazareth if you want an enabling model for one who followed his bliss, who, though the greatest victim, uh, was Christus Victor. Amen.